0: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
2: Welcome
3: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
3: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: Hey, Julie, have you ever renovated a house?
3: I have, I have to tell you that wallpaper removal is the scourge of all renovators. Uh, it's awful.
1: That's gross. I've never had to do that. I've it, had to just like scrape tiles off of hardwood floors, but that's about it.
3: I don't know. I haven't done that actually, so I can't say if it's worse, but I can say that from my own experience, uh, you know, being in a really small room, you know, filled with fumes, like ethyl methyl kind of stuff and trying to just inch by inch get you know, flowered wallpaper from the nineteen forties off is, is a horrible thing.
1: <laughs> Yellow women running around in them and all that, yeah. Yes. Because, uh, it, I mean, it's rough with with renovating because you often you'll come into a, a house or a space that is, in in some cases, unlivable. Yeah. And you you have to put all this work into it just to get it up to the standard where you you can be comfortable with the fact that you live in this space. Uh, and that's not even you know, discussing uh, the, the process of getting it where you want it to eventually be. Exactly. it, if you will. Right. Which can take forever and, and never happen.
3: That's right. It has become habitable at some point. Yes. you got to get the, the pee-pee Duchat scent out of the floor.
1: Yes. <laughs>
3: Cat pee. If possible. There you go.
1: Sometimes it's a meth lab. Supposedly, same smell. Cat pee, meth lab. That's what hmm. they say. Okay. Yeah. But... Uh, I tell you, a real fixer-upper out there, that that really, it's far rougher than any wallpaper issues you've had or or tiles on the hardwoods that I've had, and that is the prospect of moving to the planet Mars.
3: Oh, yeah, that is screaming for a redo.
1: Yeah, that place is rough. That uh,
3: garish red color?
1: Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it's just, you, you couldn't live on Mars right now. I'm, I no. mean, that's kind of an overstatement of the obvious, but, uh, but, but you could not live in it. You would have to terraform it, which is the planetary uh, version of renovating a space.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I, at first I used to think about it as, as, uh, like a terrarium for humans. Yeah. Although there would be no dome. Yeah. But I like the idea of having this gigantic terrarium on Mars filled with humans. But that's really not what scientists are thinking.
1: Yeah. They're, they're not thinking as much of, of that, but just sort of, but, but it does come down to we really wish this place was a little more like Earth um, because we want to be able to potentially live there. Right. What can we do to make it happen? And I oh, – go ahead.
3: No, I was going to say, so why, why do it? That's what I keep you know struggling with with this topic. Like, why would you terraform Mars?
1: Yeah. Now, th- this is a big one because uh, it's hard to make the argument that we need to be on Mars right now. Unless – I mean, some people, if you're Robert Zubrin uh, – Oh god! Yesterday, yeah. Then we should have been there yesterday. Hundred years ago. I mean, one of the big key arguments is that it it has to do with the long-term survival of the human race. Okay. That uh, that eventually we're going to have to become uh, an interplanetary. race, we're gonna to have to become, um, an interstellar race.
3: Because we've, what, six billion of us right now, and we're not yeah. stopping.
1: We're, we're, yeah, we're growing, there's a, the, the Earth isn't gonna last forever, and if we have this idea that we're gonna last forever, we're gonna to need to expand out, diversify our planetary portfolio. Okay. You
3: know? And sort of like the Lorax, we've, we've, uh, done a real number to our own environment, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so we wanna to try to maybe escape our atmosphere and go to a new virgin atmosphere that's all lush and pretty.
1: Yeah, I, I, th- it seems like you see less of that these days, but it seemed like that was a real driving force for a yeah. while. Like, all right, well, this one's about used up. What's next? But, uh, but at a very basic level, if we we're going to become an, an interplanetary, interstellar race, you got to take those baby steps. You know, so people talk about going to the moon, going to Mars, right? And then it expands from there. The other side of it, and and this is generally touted as more of a, a secondary argument, is that. Um, in the same way that the age of discovery propelled uh, scientific innovation, yeah. so too would the terraforming and eventual colonization of another world um, stir up a lot of technical innovation that would benefit life on Earth.
3: Yeah, actually, I even pulled a quote to that effect because I thought, well, that is interesting mm-hmm. that that's the sort of view I can take on it and say, OK, it might be worth our time because indirectly we would get all this technology. Um, Dr. Adrian Brown of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life Institute, um, he had actually said something very similar to that, saying that uh, we wouldn't have invented such precise timekeeping and navigational technology if we didn't need it in order to cross huge expanses of ocean to reach frontiers in Asia, Africa, and the New World. So he's using that same analogy for space. Yeah. which I thought was interesting. Yeah,
1: it is. And, uh, and then there's the whole argument, too, that uh, t- to really understand Mars, we would need to be there. Now, I'm not sure how well that holds up with our continued advances in uh, robotic exploration techniques. Yeah, but there's you definitely run across that argument. We're saying like if we want to we want to get to the bottom of the possibility of life on Mars now, or life in its distant path, and therefore uh, understand the um, evolution of life mm-hmm. in the cosmos better, then we're going to need to be there. So.
3: well and see I do understand the argument too but then I also kind of think well if you if you have samples that are collected by robots and sent back you know you have the data that you need right and part of it's kind of like you have to admit it would be just really cool to be on Mars yeah and that's of, a reason to go
1: <laughs> yeah it's kind of like um you know we're um at, at, as of recording this uh we're uh, planning to go to south by southwest right to record something it's kind of like if you know if if someone were to say look you really need to send us there and we're and if we're making the argument because it would also be cool you know yeah could uh, be of, a little
3: different if we just sent like a little hologram of ourselves
1: yeah yeah and, and that was on the table we were saying look let's just spend, send robot explorers to south by southwest and then we're like no because we won't get the full effect and uh you know and and we'll also have a more advanced technology for having to figure out how to send ourselves to it. Right. So it's sort of a win-win for everybody. Yeah, yeah, totally.
3: Yeah. But so I'm also wondering why Mars? Why not Venus?
1: Well, Mars is ultimately the better prospect. I mean, Venus is, I don't want to get off on Venus, though Venus is fascinating. Yeah. But Venus is, um, is, is pretty messed up. Um, I mean,
3: it's a hot mess.
1: Yeah. You like, it's, it's a hot, highly pressurized, acid, uh, clouded world. And, uh, and, and, Mars, it's just a little, it's like if you're looking at two houses, Mars is the better fix it up property. Uh, okay. Um, I think it's worth mentioning, like, exactly what's wrong Venus with
3: it. Venus is the teardown.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Venus is more of a teardown, I guess. Yeah. Th- there are terraforming schemes out there for Venus, but, yeah. but we're going to focus on Mars just because it's an easier prospect to understand. Um, and to understand what's, what exa- what's exactly wrong with Mars, right? We need to, right. I, I feel like we need to, we need to look at that. So one of the big things, Terrible atmosphere. Just really bad. Thin. Yeah. Thin, um, you know, keep in mind that humans are involved to live in a very small uh, atmospheric level of our own world. Right. And... uh, we, sort of
3: a special sauce here that yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously isn't present on Mars.
1: Yeah, and there are layers of this special sauce where we die. You know, if you go, right. if you go up to the top of Everest without uh, any kind of transition, then you you wouldn't survive. Most people. Most people. Right. The, the Sherpas would do. yeah But they're used to it. Um, so yeah, we wouldn't get enough oxygen. We'd die. Uh, it's uh, it's just, just way too thin. It lacks sufficient air pressure and contains way too much carbon dioxide.
3: It's freezing, too.
1: Yeah. It's also, yeah, really cold. It's the, uh, to go back to the Goldilocks idea. Yeah. Venus is too hot. Mars is too cold. Right. Earth is just dry.
3: Right. And if you had just even a speck of water, the moment that it hit the surface, it would just sizzle and evaporate. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, there's also, um, an important point to be made about the, the fact that there's no intact electromagnetic field. Mm-hmm. Um, Earth has one. It's generated by, um, hydrodynamic convection. Between the liquid outer core and the solid inner core, mm-hmm. and uh, without this shielding, we'd be exposed to a deadly stream of highly charged particles uh, called the solar wind. So, uh, for reasons we don't entirely understand yet, Mars lacks the protection of this. Yeah. Uh, so only- thank you,
3: el- electromagnetic field. If yeah. They haven't thanked you lately.
1: Yeah, they have. On- uh, Mars has like only remnants of a magnetic field around its right. polar ice caps. So that's that's a, it's like not having a roof on the, a working roof on the house. We'd have to figure out how to replace the roof. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, that, that's pretty rough, but there's some potential on Mars. There, uh, you know, there, there is water on, on, on the Martian surface. Right. There's, there's evidence that there
3: used to be quite a bit, right? Right. Yeah.
1: There's carbon and oxygen in the form of carbon dioxide and there's nitrogen. Um, the you know, the problem is that it's like the, the atmosphere there's like 95.3% carbon dioxide. It's just.
3: Ridiculous. As a point, as a, so was it with like a .01 or something? Uh, point. On Earth?
1: Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, and also on Mars, it's like the oxygen there is .2%. So. Yeah. Really, really low.
3: So you're gonna have to supplement with oxygen and nitrogen, obviously. hmm Um, if you were to go and terraform this in earnest. Uh, also, the, the rotation rate is on par with the Earth's 24-hour cycle. Yeah. And it's close enough to the sun to experience seasons, which is always lovely. <laughs>
1: Because you want seasons when you live on other worlds.
3: Well, sure. Uh, you know, you want to have your winter home on one part and your summer home on the other.
1: Yeah. So,
3: Richard Branson.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so then this comes to the question: What would it take to fix it up? What would it take to get that new roof on it to, right. to bump up the atmosphere to scrape the horrible wallpaper off the the walls of Mars? And uh, and make it look pretty again.
3: Yeah, well, and there are actually some some very good ideas about this, right? Yeah. Good in the sense that they are solutions.
1: Yeah, and they're based in science. Um, I I think for a lot of people, like the idea of like for me, the earliest I ex- experience I have with terraforming mm-hmm. was uh, seeing uh, I think aliens and they had the big terraforming stations, and I only had a vague idea of what it was doing. That it was like these giant buildings that are, like, spitting out smoke are going to somehow transform this world into a place that humans can live on. Okay. Which, uh,
3: So the greenhouse gas effect.
1: Yeah. A lot of it breaks down to that. Like, our experience in screwing up our own world crosses <laughs> over to some of the ideas uh, for making uh, Mars a little more like uh, what we want.
3: Okay. So we want, like, big coal mining factories is what you're saying.
1: Yeah. But basically, the, yeah, the, one of the ideas, the, the aliens model, if you will, is to create these greenhouse gas-producing factories. Um you know they would be uh, the, the the same heating effect that we have here on earth uh with greenhouse gases could be reproduced on mars by uh, setting up uh, sending up hundreds of these factories across the Martian okay.
3: surface and releasing cfc's yes yeah, so.
1: cfc's methane carbon dioxide other greenhouse gases just pump it into the atmosphere just mm-hmm. basically pollution machines on on mars uh to try and uh, it it's kind of like on mars it's like the water's a little too hot so we add some some uh some cold water to 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 cool the bath down Right. and on mars it's the re- the re- the reverse. Yeah. So. so that's one scheme. Uh another involves uh large orbital mirrors to reflect the sunlight and heat the martian surface. All right? This would you know giant mirrors kind of like the, the the ones that the Soviets experimented with, with for the idea of uh, of 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 giving sunlight to uh, dark regions during mm-hmm. the winter. Uh and these uh would uh, would concentrate the uh, light onto the polar caps and melt the ice, uh, this would release carbon dioxide believed to be trapped inside the ice. Okay. And um, the rise in temperatures would, over the years, would conceivably release greenhouse gases such as these CFCs, and uh, the same that you find in your air conditioner or okay. refrigerator.
3: So like melting polar caps and then this would all lead to photosynthesis at some point. Right. Right years and years and years And yes, again we're years, ta- years. one of the things I think to think about is you know you've had some people say it could take centuries and you have other people saying it could take thousands and thousands of years
1: yeah one of the important things is that when you're talking about changing an atmosphere you're, you' you get into this whole area of fluid dynamics you get into the, into into just the, the chaos theory itself yeah just a refresh the idea that the chaos theory emerged from the attempt to create more reliable computer models of weather of of how our atmosphere works mm-hmm. and the chaos theory is, is that you can only figure it out so far and then it just it just breaks down right so we're up against that and trying to figure out how to tinker with another world's um, atmosphere we don't fully understand how our own works or we at least the thing we understand the most about it is that it's incredibly complex right so there are a lot of what ifs that end up falling into it in different people's uh, figures uh, will you know will say decades and another will say centuries
3: well and then there's the whole dark matter out in space the fact that we don't really know what exactly it is and how it affects planets, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, and then w- we actually talked about this yesterday about the possibility of smashing ammonia-heavy asteroids into oh, the planet yes. uh, to sort of create the the same uh, greenhouse gas level effect.
1: Now, this is another one that's uh that uh, Robert uh, Zubrin uh, is really fond of and presented in his book, uh, A Case for Mars, and uh, Zubrin is. A really interesting guy. I, I get to interview him for uh, a Discovery News article. Yeah. And I have—I don't think I've ever interviewed somebody just so passionate about their thing. And I've interviewed plenty of people who are really passionate about their their, their topics and their 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 life's work. But Zubrin is indeed—he's just like we should be on Mars yesterday. And yeah. Here's why.
3: Yeah. I, I I listened to that audio file, and at the risk of um Robert Zubrin like reaching out to me and saying you know, you you're the devil incarnate. That dude is a fanatic.
0: <laughs> but I
3: kinda like that because you need the those people, you need that passionate oh, level exactly, in order yeah. to be like, we well, gotta do this, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean I you gotta you need extremist or an and an extremely passionate people to push these ideas into the public mindset. Otherwise there too many people will just not listen. Right. And,
3: and also, you know, I know this is a little bit of an aside. I was thinking about him and I was thinking about his role and I thought, even if this doesn't happen right now, I mean, he, he very well may be like the Da Vinci (laughs) in the sense of his time and that, you know, Da Vinci had all these drawings for flight, but obviously the technology didn't exist until much, much later. And, uh, you know, who knows? People could go down in history and be like, that Zubrin guy was righteous. Yeah, He knew what he was talking about.
1: And he was, yeah, he was ahead of his time. We should have, we should have been, on Mars in the, uh, the 20th century.
3: Right. That being said, let's talk about the, uh, the ammonia ridden asteroid, oh, yeah, yeah. which is a little bit creepy.
1: Well, <laughs> it's a, it's one of the, another one of these ideas is just very catastrophic sounding yeah. because you're talking, messing with the planet's atmosphere. It's, it's very reminiscent of some of the, uh, the, the scenarios we look at with things like nuclear winter or, or, um, um, or, you know, asteroids, uh, impacting the earth. Right. Um, and this basically boils down to the belief that if you hurled these large icy asteroids that were just full of ammonia uh, at Mars, they would produce tons of greenhouse gases and water. Okay, so you would need nuclear thermal rocket engines, and you'd have to somehow attach these to an asteroid from the outer solar system, and then the rockets would move the asteroids in about uh, four kilometers per second for a period of about a decade uh, before the rockets would shut off and allow the 10 billion ton asteroids to glide unpowered toward the Martian surface mm-hmm. and uh, the energy released upon impact would be about 130 million megawatts of power.
3: Uh, yeah. 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 And, and can you imagine the dust settling <laughs> from that? I mean, it would take centuries and centuries.
1: And it's uh, not that you mentioned dust. That's another uh, scheme that's out there is to take material yeah. from a C-class asteroid um, or a Martian moon and spread it over Mars polar caps. So this would be, um, and another kind of drastic global warming type of scheme coated with dust. The poles would then absorb more solar radiation because, remember, you'd have, you know, you wear a dark shirt on a sunny day. You're warmer than if you wear a white shirt.
3: Right. It's
1: the same scenario.
3: You're um, absorbing more sunlight.
1: Yeah. They absorb more sunlight, causing them to heat up, release carbon dioxide, atmospheric atmospheric pressure um, increases, and you'd have the, the greenhouse effect. And you know, eventually we get it up to the point where Arnold Schwarzenegger's eyeballs would explode if he took his helmet off. That's the ultimate goal. Sweet. In all things, but but also (laughs) in in terraforming. All
3: right. So, I mean, I guess that that is the point where then people could be supplemented with oxygen and nitrogen to a certain degree, but not like full on like they would need right now.
1: Yeah. Any of these uh, schemes you're looking at, it's not, you wouldn't be able to turn Mars into Idaho in a decade or a century. You know, there would be this long, slow process of where it becomes more Idaho-esque.
3: Yeah, and I guess that, that sort of plays into the, the outmoded idea that this would be a population outlet mm-hmm. for, for Earth, right? Like if we reached 20 billion people, by the time we, actually by the time we reached 20 billion people, you'd have to assume that we would have had some sort of solution in place because by the time that you can actually have Mars habitable, it would be thousands and thousands and thousands of years from now. Yeah. So that's one of the arguments of like, hey, let's not try to. This shouldn't probably be our backup plan for humanity, <laughs> right?
1: Plus, I, I I like to, or I don't like to think this, but um, it seems like if the more we we move towards potentially having more world peace, uh, that's just going to get in the way of people needing to leave here. So we uh, if we got to the point where we had the technology to, to to go to other worlds and seed them with our people, uh, you might want to make uh, conditions on Earth particularly hellish. And then people would have a reason to flee, right?
3: Right, right.
1: Same model as the early count, or just a, a good reason to make tons and tons of money, which is another huge factor. Uh, you get into like mining on on Mars for helium three and things like that. Uh, then you could conceivably see it uh, being a possibility. Yeah,
3: yeah. Halliburton's all over this. Um. So this also kind of plays into the ethics, right? There's yes. um, and, and there are there's actually like kind of like a science gang war going on here and it's like the reds and the greens yeah i'm not kidding like the reds are the are the folks who are like you know what maybe we should look at mars and try to keep it intact as much as possible and still study it but keep the integrity of it because maybe there's something that its ecosystem can tell us and if we were to try to terraform it we would sort of pollute that possibility of learning more about it
1: yeah it's the idea that there might be some you know little signs of what uh, life may have been like on Mars, if there was life on Mars uh, at some point in the past. Right. That those those secrets are buried and those secrets are there to be found, provided that we don't completely contaminate the place. It's, right. it's like a controlled crime scene. You don't want yeah. the bumbling local detectives to go uh, and local police officers to come in and touch everything because the big city detective, he needs to get in there with all its high tech gear and figure out what's what.
3: Right. Like, we wouldn't want to introduce an invasive microbial species that would just, you know, lay waste to everything. Yeah. Because then we'd be like, oh, we didn't learn anything really about Mars. Now we're just trying to fit our earthly paradigm, you know, into Mars, this other thing, which we don't really know about yet. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the reds.
1: Yes. And then the the greens, of which uh, Zubrin is definitely a member. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, his whole thing is, like, this is... uh, I actually, he put it really nicely in the, the interview I did with him. Um, and I'm, I'm sure he's used to this exact example many times, but he's like, if you were to make the argument, Hey, let's take, um, let's take earth and let's turn it into a, a barren, lifeless world. Let's do that. Let's, let's get started in this project right away. You would say, dude, you're crazy. Don't turn, <laughs> don't turn the planet, this living lush planet into a desert. Right. And his thing is, then the the reverse is is true too that the argument like look at mars it's dead it's empty there's nothing living there it's a wasteland we have a responsibility to turn it into a green world
3: See, and that's the the problem I have with it, because it's like absolutism, right? Yeah. It's like, it's dead. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know, because NASA actually has said, well, we, you know, there are these methane plumes that keep kind of unfurling in front of us, making us realize that there's methane being released, which kind of points us in the direction that there may be some sort of life form, you know, at least on a microbial level. Mm-hmm. And so we can't necessarily pronounce it dead.
1: Yeah. I guess it's kind of like if there was like a house in a neighborhood and it was like really crappy and someone was maybe the argument, Hey, we need to fix this up. There's like, there's, it's doing nothing. It's just a complete, uh, ruin. It's, you know, foreclosed on. Let's, let's get somebody in there. Let's get, let's get this thing torn down and rebuilt or something. Right. And then you can make the argument, well, feral cats are living there. Those feral cats need to live somewhere. Uh, so why not this house or there's some, making some argument that, that, uh, that something natural may be going on that we shouldn't stamp on just yet.
3: Yeah. Or they might say there's a Tiffany stained window in there. You know? <laughs> yeah. You can't knock that down. Exactly.
1: Okay. That's an even better example. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. So I don't know. That's, I think it's a very fascinating, uh, topic. And I do really like the idea of technology coming out of the, maybe the thought experiment of yeah. it. But obviously it's something that, um, that were, you know, at least in the United States, we don't necessarily have the economic power to put a lot of money into, Um, particularly since some of these plans, like there's a $450 billion plan rolled out in the Bush one era that was like, hey, we can build this orbital platform on Mars and launch this and do this. And Bush was like, yeah, I don't yeah. think so. And there have been subsequent uh, plans. In fact, Zubrin came up with a, a, a couple of pretty good ones. That are more in like the 20 to 50 billion dollar range. Still, that's.
1: Yeah, that's still a lot of money. It's, yeah. I mean, it's sad to think. Uh, I mean, at some point in the past, somebody made the, the argument that, that, uh, uh and I forget who, who was saying, maybe it was just a friend I was talking to, but they were like, we're not gonna, you, we're not gonna see a person land on Mars in our lifetime. Now, whether that's true or not remains to be seen, but just the prospect's kind of sad because you grow up watching all this science fiction right. and hearing all this science. And, you know, we've been talking about landing on Mars for well over half a century. I mean, we've been talking about it longer than that, but we've had more concrete plans uh, in that time period. And uh, to think that it's not going to happen is is kind of depressing because you, you kind of grow up thinking that this is where your your life is going to go, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, and hence Zubrin and, and his, uh, <laughs> his impatience. Yeah. And saying, look, we do have the technology, we could do it.
1: Yeah.
3: I mean, it's plausible.
1: Yeah, and of course, the more we learn though, you know, it, the, the more the, the situation becomes complicated because uh, there's a 2010 study from uh, the Swedish Institute of Space Physics mm-hmm. and the University of Leicester and uh, they found that double solar radiation waves periodically strip away 30% of the sparse Martian atmosphere. So th- these waves occur when one solar wave overtakes another to produce a, a single, like, super wave. Yeah. And, uh, and so what little atmosphere remains on the planet is due to comets, comet strikes and the occasional melting of polar ice. So even if we, st- so it, it kind of creates this, <laughs> this horrible situation. It's like the money pit, like the, mo- you're going to rebuild it right. and then stuff's just going to bust it down. Right. So I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't try, but. But it, it, it's a little disheartening to, to, to have that added bit of information.
3: Well, and I was thinking too that astrobiology, which we've talked about before, is still such a young field mm-hmm. in, in terms of the new technologies it has at its disposal. Right. You know, what, what might it be able to uncover in the next 10 years to tell us a little bit more about Mars and, and how to look at that situation and look at terraforming anew? So I don't think that we have all the data in. It's what, yeah. we're, what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no,
1: yeah, we should definitely not shut the case, uh, sh- shut, shut the, the lid on the case just yet. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I like to think it'll happen someday. We'll see.
3: We'll see. Yeah. Let's bring on the mail.
1: Yes, we do have a couple of bits of mail here from, uh, some people who have some experience with doppelgangers. Oh, uh, yeah. calling back to our defeat your doppelgangers podcast. Uh, first, uh, we're going to hear from Matt. Matt says, hey guys, love the podcast. Just listen to your show, Defeat Your Doppelgangers. This one really hit home with me because as a young kid, I always had the impression that there are, were multiple copies of myself hanging around my hometown. I never felt there was any malicious intent or an evil clone. I always knew in the back of my mind that around any corner, I might bump into a copy of myself. I never found one, but to this day, I still have a feeling that they are out there somewhere. Also, as a kid, I always thought that the mirror in my bathroom or any mirror was actually a view into the closest relative neighborhood dimension. That is to say, looking—that uh, is to say, a looking glass into the closest dimension to ours. The image staring back at me was not a reflection, but the other me the, from the next dimension looking in his mirror. Uh, Whoa! Yeah. So, um, Matt, thanks for sharing that. That's. Uh, <laughs>
3: That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. My mind is a little bit blown there. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to share, too, there's a comment by Jane on Facebook, and she was talking about our Neanderthals episode. Um, and she actually made a really good point that in that episode, we kept referring to Neanderthals as he. Yeah. There's, like, no mention of any female Neanderthals, which, of course, we know that existed. Um, in fact, that's the mitochondrial DNA that tells us so much today about what went on with Neanderthals. Um they, the possessors of it. But, uh, and she also points out that when we were talking about them making glue and so on and so forth, we kept talking about he doing it. And I thought, you know what, that's a really good point to make. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for keeping us sharp because, I, you know, it's kind of hard sometimes you fall back on that, that old, um he pronoun as a catch-all. Uh-huh. So, I just wanted to say, yes, the Neanderthals, the ladies, they they were definitely a big part of that group, and it was interesting because a lot of the research uh, that I I came across, at least, and especially the stuff that was produced online, shows this sort of patriarchal paradigm of the men making the glue and <laughs> like the women going through the men's hair and uh, grooming them, and the men barking Neanderthal orders out of them. So. Uh, anyway, again, thank you, Jane. And I love these comments that you guys give us, you know, via email and Facebook, and you guys really give us some good, thoughtful insight. Stuff for our minds to chew on as well.
1: Indeed. One more quick doppelganger. Uh, Eric writes in, he says, I've never met anyone who could be my twin, but I have had some problems with my name. Um, my name doppelganger is uh, in a doppelganger that I'm you know, sure one's name right. I moved to Portland Oregon in 2005 from the San Francisco Bay Area when I applied for a library card here I was surprised to learn that there were unpaid overdue books under my name turns out someone with my name please don't read it on the air and gives, gives his full name um, is also living Richard in this, Branson <laughs> is also living in the suburb of Portland the town has a population of a little less than 23,000 people so yeah that uh, happens probably more frequently uh, we encounter individuals that share our exact name and uh, especially if you end up googling your own name like I do uh, way too much you know it's like when am I going to overtake the murderer Robert Lamb when am I going to overtake the uh, the uh, He-Man the animated series animator and,
3: yeah mine mine uh, I think I'm like a Julie Douglas is maybe a triathlete somewhere in Austria or something I can't yeah. remember I haven't googled myself for a long time but I was like you go Julie Douglas <laughs>
1: Yeah, the, the Julie Douglases of the world need to stick together and make it work, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. I just a little fist bump to you guys out <laughs> there, at Julie Douglases.
1: Well, cool. If you have uh, any uh, little tidbits to add or uh, just want to interact with us, then uh, head on over to Facebook or Twitter. You'll find us as Blow the Mind on both of those. We keep that updated with all sorts of good stuff.
3: And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our
0: homepage. The Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here and it's transparent. The
2: Zumo Play.